It, it's all part uh, of the rich tapestry of life, John. Money keep on calling, calling. 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 Feel like money keep calling, yeah. Money keep on calling, calling. Money keep on calling, yeah. Money keep on calling, calling. Money keep on calling. Hello and welcome to episode 47 of Major Revisions, a podcast about ecology and academia from the perspective of three early career scientists. I'm John Balter, and with me are Grace Wilkinson and Jeff Atkins. How are you guys doing tonight? All right. I'm doing well. It's pretty cold here in Iowa, so there's that. Winter has come. <laughs> Winter is no longer coming. I just got back from northern Michigan where there was like two foot of snow on the ground and it kept snowing and the temperature never got above like 20 something. And the whole time I was like, I love this place. I could so do winter up here. And one of my colleagues who was with me, who lives in Michigan, pointed out to me, she's like, you realize this is fall, right? Right. (laughs) This is, this is not winter. In fact, we're like at least three to four weeks away from winter. It's only going to get darker and colder and snowier. Um. Yeah, which has not deterred me. me. I still think it it looks like eternal sunset. But that is a really (laughs) optimistic view of it. I like that. I'm gonna think about that as the sun is setting around 4 p.m. tomorrow. (laughs) Eternal sunset of the spotless fieldwork season. (laughs) Um, Guys, I have something really exciting to tell you today. They got really excited about. Um, Yes, Starbucks has a new juniper-flavored latte. Nope. It's coffee that tastes like a tree. It it could have been woodsier. Like, if it had been woodsier, (laughs) I would have really liked it. Like, okay, so, uh, other thing for you. Like, I know you guys don't drink beer, but, like, uh, Ballast Point has a new spruce-flavored IPA. It's fucking on point, right? And this is a thing up north, too. Like, spruce-flavored beers, fucking so good. The Starbucks latte, the juniper thing, could have been more juniper. I I need some more Christmas tree woodsy taste. You want to know what also tastes like juniper? Gin. (laughs) (laughs) And I am so much more on board with gin than a freaking latte. Oh, come on. Okay, so you need to throw some spruce needles in your gin and tonic and try that shit out. It's good for you. (laughs) Okay. I'm just saying. You can do it. All right. Overall, like, I don't know, six out of ten. Six out of ten. All right. Yeah. Welcome to Major... Major beverages are food review show. So, didn't actually work. Anyway, I say try it. So go for it. Could be woodsier. I think woodsy flavored things are good. Well, and it, it certainly is fitting with the holidays because the holiday season is pretty much here. <laughs> the grocery store thinks so. Yeah. Well, if it's the holiday season, what is on your holiday science wish list? That is a good question. John, what's on yours? Um, my holiday science wish list is a dream a dream data set that, that really can't actually <laughs> exist in in real oh. life. Okay. Um, but it would have it would be a real population, not a lab experiment, that is like sampled high frequency and the organism is migratory and 
we also know we can track all the individuals in it. Okay, that's very us, specific. Yeah, you give it's, this a lot of thought. <laughs> well, okay, so I have, like I'm trying to do this work on on spatial synchrony in birds, and it's just like it's been driving me nuts to try and like really know what I'm looking at because birds move a lot and there's all these like different different seasons and we have data from different seasons but they're collected not using identical protocols and stuff like that um and so I would just really love to know where all of the birds are going mm -hmm. and know how many there are in different places pretty much at all times does that i mean that that sounds like the kind of thing that only santa could give me so yeah or like a well never mind <laughs> one of those people that saying that that Broadcom. song about the we are headed north and new york new york take me in was that band two New brothers York, yeah. they used to be punk then they went oh folk. yeah yeah the avid brothers after they jumped avid the brothers thank you it yeah. sounds like an avid uh, brothers songs i want to know where all the no, birds are no band has like plummeted off a cliff faster than those guys did right <laughs> jeez gone from my memory a sad comment on my memory jeff what would Man. be on your science christmas wish list i'm thinking now i didn't know we were going hypothetical you I can go we actual well, we were talking in the lab the other day about measuring canopy fluorescence, right? Like this idea that you can hit up like kind of a certain wavelength and see the actual photosynthesis happening like within the canopy. And so like one of the ways you do this is you measure like the solar induced fluorescence or SIF. So there's like a sensor that you shoot at trees that measures this wavelength and you can kind of see photosynthesis actually with intensity. But like, we're like, how can you measure this? Because it's done like at a little point scale. And it has to sit on a tower. And we were trying to figure out if we could build one that we could move around, like, underneath the trees and actually measure different points in space kind of freely. But there's all those problems of, like, power source and all this other stuff, too, and getting multiple measurements. I'm trying to weigh if the ease of doing this. So I need a magic... Could you? They make little ones that you, like, clamp on the leaves, right? And then just measure what's going on in the leaf. But, like, you know, my trees are really big. I can't just carry around a magic... <laughs> I mean, I do have a canopy lift, but it only goes so high, and the trees are... It only goes, like, 15 meters, I well, think, tops. Sure. These trees are, like, 40. Most people have three. Yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah, canopy lifts. Canopy Most people lifts? have three. Iowa is yeah. so nice. Right? No, so... Because we don't have a canopy. That's true. <laughs> it's corn's, corn. Corn's not very high. <laughs> so, that's the, okay, that's the problem. I, I, I know you guys as limnologists now, since John's an official limnologist in the limnology club, mm -hmm. that, that you limnologists, like, so all of our stuff that we use is, like, backwards adapted in forest from, like, the ag industry, where fucking corn and soy are, like, two meters tall at best. Mm. And so everything is calibrated for that. And so we're constantly having to, like, back figure out how to do things. So maybe I just want stuff made for forestry, actually. Just that. That would be cool. Well, there's got to be a lot That's of money it. in it then, right? I mean, I know yeah, there's, there's some not, money in forestry. Because the, but... the money's in corn. Yeah. <laughs> corn, sweet potatoes. 
Actually, Soy. I'm just going to do that now. That's my yeah, actually uh, Christmas. I just want a new, uh, I want a new career focus. That's it. I'm an agronomist now. <laughs> Welcome to Major Tillage, our agricultural <laughs> science podcast. <laughs> All right, Grace, Gee, what, what do you, you need for, for the waters? Yeah, so I've been thinking about this, and, and I'm not... I, I Maybe what I want for Christmas is this magical time where I have get to take the vacation and be relaxed and rejuvenated, spend time with my family, you know, uh, get to the things on my to-do list at home that'll actually make me happy. But then also, so so taking that time and that work-life balance time, but then also having this time where I'm at work, but then no one talks to me and no one sends me an email. And so I can sit and actually get work done. And I think that this is magical. And in fact, I was being punished for it because we, we have Thanksgiving the full week. We um, we don't get a fall break. We just take the full week for Thanksgiving. And so it was Sunday. I, it had been about 10 days since I'd been at work. I was in that relaxed, rejuvenated, magical place. And I decided to sit down and I was really excited about this manuscript. And as I was sitting and writing this manuscript, I'd gotten through the methods. I was working through the results. I had all the figures gone and my computer just quit. It just stopped and it hasn't turned back on. Backed on. I, I got a new computer tonight. Um, any files that weren't backed up, bye. Manuscript, bye. Yeah. So I was being punished for thinking that I could be in that space. So what I want for Christmas is for that space to exist and to not be punished for being there. That's what I want. That is rough. We said hypothetical, not fantasy, Grace. Right. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a little bit of an ask I'm a woman who just knows what she wants <laughs> and speaking of knowing what I want I want National Science Foundation funding Amen. how's that for a segue <laughs> so okay so episode 44 Three episodes ago now, we started this discussion about National Science Foundation grants that covered a lot of the ground on the structure of how NSF works, including types of awards and how to prepare your submission. Um, tonight, we're going to talk about taking you actually through the review process and what happens post-review. So, Grace, you've submitted a grant fairly recently, I believe, right? Yes, with John. Got a grant. Mm-hmm. You got a grant. All right, so guys what is how this process starts right like so you got the grant and everything together and you're actually going to submit it how does that work and what does it look like do i just kind of mail it out to them do i just like pigeon carrier pigeon or something? how's it work <laughs> I, I wish we still use carrier pigeon that would probably make the process more efficient yeah Yes, you, you have to submit it through your university, and, and that's because they're actually the ones submitting the grant on your behalf and, like, signing the contract, um, and they're the ones that get the overhead, right? So, and, and I think we talked about overhead in the last episode, that's the, the price you pay to keep the lights on and administrators administrating and things like that. So it's something that actually has to be done through a university, which means it has to go through the bureaucratic mill before it can do that. So if you're sitting down and you're getting ready to submit your first federal grant or really any grant of that type and you're new at the university, um, the first thing you should do is contact the people who submit the grant weeks in advance. 
maybe even months, depending on how big the grant is, because they're going to want to be a part of it every step of the way, both in to help you out and also to make sure that they get it submitted and submitted on time. Is that fair, John? Uh, absolutely. Um, and those those people are probably called your sponsored programs office or some variant on that. Um, and they vary in quality. So, <laughs> and, and, and the people That's in judicious. them vary in quality. It, it's all part uh, of the rich tapestry of life, John. Yeah. yeah or at least so, academia. So just pray that you have a good sponsored programs office and that you get, uh, you get a good person. Um, and oftentimes the best people are not the most sort of litigious and rule following people, but the people who know how to work the system and get things done. Yeah. Probably one of the biggest bottlenecks and the person that can also help you navigate this bottleneck if they're good, like John's saying, is that before you submit your grant, there needs to be a series of signatures and reviews that happen at various levels, both with in your department and at the college level and maybe even at the provost level. And so that series of signatures and reviews is um, stressful if you're doing it at the last minute. And I think stressful is like a big understatement. So start early, start often. And mostly what they care about is the budget. So get your budget started. Also, it's really hard to plan for a grant if you're not doing the budget pretty early on anyways. Like, how do you know what you're asking for? The, the other plug that I'd put for, for your sponsored programs office is that, I mean, it's these people's job to know what the formatting requirements and the budgetary requirements and things like that are. Um, and failure to follow those can really like completely derail your grant and prevent it from being even looked at. Um, but different organizations have different requirements and, and formats and things like that. So uh, a good sponsored programs office and, and, and person are like worth their weight in gold uh, in terms of, you know, helping to get everything in the right place at the right time uh and and to keep keep you on you and your grant on track mm -hmm. exactly although i think just like most bureaucracies uh sponsored program offices follow the peters principle right that you you are promoted to the level of your greatest incompetency so once a good person is there they're often going to be moved and gone somewhere else at least that's what i find <laughs> um <laughs> So. That's, callous, that's a callous yet very realistic view. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, it's the same with PIs. <laughs> no, no good deed goes unpunished. For sure. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So you, you've taken the grant, you've submitted it, you've been cooperative. You probably gave your sponsored office at least eight weeks lead time, right? And worked with them hand in hand. Just like they requested. And that went smoothly, and they submitted at least two weeks before the deadline, and it actually went through fast lane, and there was no hiccup whatsoever. Nothing got kicked back, right? So it's all good. Mm -hmm. So, what happens next? Like, where does the where does this go? Like the grant? Like, what is next in the process? It gets reviewed. 
Okay, so how does that yeah. work? Like, who is actually doing the reviews on these? And do they review them before... Do they all meet in a panel first and do the reviews? Or do they kind of go out for a review first and then they meet as a panel? Like, what's you guys' experience on this? Yeah, so a grant, depending on... Uh, the program officer will get all of the grants um, and take for the submission, take a look at them and where there's overlap in terms of the fields or whatnot and try to start assembling a panel. And that panel is going to be filled with a variety of expertise that help cover the grants, but they're also going to be filled um, with people at different career stages of um, perhaps um, making sure that they're thinking about people in different states, different types of institutions, underrepresented minorities. So program officers really hustle hard to make sure that they try to have a balanced panel in many different respects. But if an expertise isn't on their panel, then they send it out for an ad hoc review. Um, so John, you want to talk about ad hoc reviews a little bit? Sure. Um, so these are, I mean, this is ad hoc review is a lot like reviews of, of journal articles. Um, they're experts in, in the field or, or, or specific parts of the proposal, um, that, you know, are over and above, uh, what is covered by the panel itself. Um, they are, you know, conducted, um, you know, sort of remotely um, in writing. And so you get an ad hoc reviewer gets sent a grant um, and, you know, a deadline and, and they return a, um, a, a written review kind of similar to, as I mentioned before, you know, the reviews on a, on a manuscript, um, except that there are gonna be, you know, particular um, aspects of the, the proposal that um, the panel wants the reviewer to, to comment on. And uh, these, uh, you know, kind of help the help the panel to, to make a decision. Um, and they're, you know, kind of weighted along with the, the panel's own impressions of the, um, of the proposal in um, kind of grouping proposals uh, in terms of their their competitiveness and um, making you know making decisions about uh, what is going to be funded. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think those ad hocs can be really helpful at times as well in the panel discussion, which we'll talk about the panel in a, in a minute. But that they can really help because they're bringing in an expertise that the panel themselves don't have. And particularly if it's methods-based or something like that, an ad hoc review can really help make or break whether a grant gets put into a competitive or a non-competitive category, at least was my hey, experience. So, quick question on that. Um, when sent out for an ad hoc review, is it sent out usually to one person, two persons? How does that work? Or do you know? Um, I think it can be sent, it can be sent out to N number of persons. Okay. Um, sometimes it, from the few that I've seen on the panel, there was one or two, but sometimes there's even three or four ad hoc reviews that are sent out. And, and, and I think that, um, this, this may be particularly in the case where there are kind of divergent reviews, um, that even more, uh, might be solicited. I think, uh, a grant that I was on, uh, received five different ad hoc reviews whoa uh, yeah okay um yeah so thanks to those five people uh really just four of them uh, for, for reviewing our grant 
So when those ad hocs come in, they all go to, they're made available to the panel. Um, which, so if you're selected to be on the panel, and by the way, if you want to talk to a panel, my same advice, talk to a program officer. I actually saw recently when I was on the NSFDEB website, they even have a thing that says like, do you want to be on a panel? And you can click on it and get your name and information added to a database. It is a ton of work, but it is amazingly helpful if you want to be getting funding from National Science Foundation, but a ton of work. Um, and that is because you are assigned a number of proposals that can be depending on the number of proposals that were submitted and the size of the panel, anywhere from eight to 15 proposals that you need to review and write written reviews for beforehand. And you'll okay. be given about a month to do that. Um, and then you're assigned lead on a few of them. Um, and yeah, so then when, so you submit all your reviews before you go, you get to DC and it's probably the first good night's sleep you've had in a while. And then <laughs> you go to the brand new NSF um, building, right? And sit down in this room to have a panel discussion. You get some really good training on how to make sure that you're not trying to be biased in your reviews, right? So NSF does a really good job in trying to consider these different dimensions. Um, and then the panel sits down and discusses. And um, yeah, have, have you all served on a panel or heard about these? Like what is your impressions of what happens? I've talked to people, but never served on one. Same, same here. Yeah. So what has been sort of like your impression of what you've heard of what happens? Because I had no idea going in. <laughs> so I, I've heard really positive things. It, it was a lot of work, but, um, you know, the two or three people I've talked about or talked to about this, they, they learned a lot. It was exhausting, um, but also made, you know, like met people within their field who maybe they had read papers from or whatever and got so basically created collaborations there, learned a lot from, you know, reviewing the process and also like just understanding how grants are reviewed as well. Like it seemed like a really positive, yeah. though exhausting experience was what I've heard. So John, yeah. what about you? Yeah. I mean, sim similar types of things. I, I think that the takeaway that that I had from kind of synthesizing other people's experiences is that you know, people really work hard to do, to be fair and to do a good job. Um, I know that, you know, as people who are being reviewed and um, selected or not selected for funding, that it's easy to, um, you know, to bitch about decisions and, and stuff like that. But I think that, uh, you know, the people who, and, 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 and also not to say that there aren't, um, you know, issues of, you know, representation and things like that um, in, you know, in who receives grants and, and so on and so forth. Um, but I think that, you know, the people who are on panels really work hard to, um, to do a, a fair and thorough job. Yeah, and I, I th there are so many biases, right, that can come into play. Um, and I think that's great fodder for actually a whole other episode that we should probably do on that. But at least in, in the point to say here is, and, and to really reiterate what John said, is that um, the, the panel is trying hard and the program officers are really well trained and they're trying hard and trying to call things out as well. Um, and they try to create a really well-balanced panel, which is nice. Um, so like as an early career person, I didn't feel like my opinion meant less than anybody else when I was on the panel. Yeah. Um, and so what happens when you're there is everybody's sitting in this big room in a uh, 
tables that are all facing each other, so in a big circle, and each grant gets put up on the board, um, flashed up, it's like on a projector, the the title, and it's that grant's opportunity, that's when you're going to start talking about it. They're in an order. And the three people who were assigned that grant um, and were taking the lead on it, and then there's a lead lead on the grant in terms of the discussion, start talking about it. And everyone is supposed to be sort of listening, paying attention, hearing what the discussion is about, because you might not have been assigned that grant, but you might have some expertise in that area or you know, be able to offer something. Or if there's a question about, hey, is this legitimate, be able to offer. So everyone's listening, but these three people are discussing. And they're not only discussing um, their reviews of it, so the strengths and the weaknesses, but also the ad hoc reviews and what anyone else has said about it. And in particular for criteria one and two, which I know we we covered in the last episode, right? Criteria one being about intellectual merit and criteria two, broader impacts. Um, and so then they come to a consensus. And the, the consensus is um, when you get your reviews, and this can be kind of confusing, right? So reviewers, when they're writing their reviews, they rank them as excellent, very good, good, fair, or poor. But in the panel, you're either placing them into two categories, competitive or not competitive. Not competitive means there's a fatal flaw and it's not likely, it, it, it shouldn't be funded. Anything in the competitive category becomes fair game, game in the panel's view for potentially being fundable. Um, but then you put it into high priority, medium priority, and low priority. In, in the competitive category. So this is a good grant, you know, it, it would be a, a low competitive grant would be it's good, but maybe it's uh, it's all sound, but maybe it's more incremental and not as transformative as say a high priority. Does that make sense? Um, so there's not any major fundamental flaw or whatnot, but it's it's not as transformative as say the high priority. And so that's the consensus that they're coming to. And so that's where you can have reviews that come in with a, an excellent, an excellent, very good, fair, and that's how that panel summary comes to some consensus in, in terms of their recommendation. Um, and so, and, and usually in those instances, the fair might be from someone who has a really le um, legitimate point and can um, make the point and just argue the, the point with the other panelists that this is really an issue or a fatal flaw. And that can change something that has an excellent, excellent, very good fair to being not competitive because the other panelists during that discussion, and this is where NSF is really great because you have that big group discussion and you can talk about these issues and whether or not they're really issues and people change their minds. And that actually indicates that that really helps build that consensus. So when that's done, then those people need to go and write the panel summary, which is the most painful process in the world because you are desperately trying to make sure that you highlight and really communicate to the people who wrote to the grant what their strengths and the weaknesses for each criteria were, why the panel came to the consensus that it did and made the recommendation that it did, and also doing it all in the language that's unbiased and as fair as possible. Um, so this, I don't know, this took me a long time to get the hang of, but luckily you do these Everybody looks at them, everybody has to approve them, and then it gets sent to the program officer who takes a look not for content, but takes a look to make sure that it reflects the discussion that was had and that you are putting that you are using the appropriate language. Um, and this is why I believe program officers are heroes. Is because <laughs> is because 
uh, as a, a panelist, you're writing a few of these. They are looking at every single one and editing for grammar, syntax, content, everything, and making sure it reflects the panel discussion. So this is why program officers truly are heroes, and they are hustling really hard. <laughs> so then at the end of the panel, all of the grants have been um, a recommendation either as competitive or not competitive with those different competitive categories. And then you go through as a group one last time and make sure you're really comfortable with your rankings. Now that you've seen the full field of grants, that one that you ranked as high, highly competitive is maybe more of a medium now, right? Um, and, and so there's a little bit of reshuffling that happens at that point. And then when everyone agrees on the order, the program officers make sure everyone agrees, and then you're dismissed because you're not saying who gets funded or not, you're making a recommendation. And I think that's the most important part. You're advising the program officer. Yeah, so I wanna, I wanna bring up a, a, a mailbag question that relates to this, and, and we touched on a little bit, but I think we could do so more explicitly. Um, so Owen McKenna writes, uh, how are proposals ranked when ranks from reviewers are very disparate? Did you encounter that? Did you encounter that when you were on a panel and what kind of experience did you have? Yeah, and, and I think people have seen this in their own grant reviews that they've gotten back as well, right? It seems like the, because uh, you get everyone's written review as well as the panel summary and the rewritten reviews can be all over the board. And I, I think it really just, matters what was the strongest argument. Someone could have ranked it as fair and seen a fatal flaw. And then in the panel discussion, someone says, no, it's not actually a fatal flaw. And here's the argument that I have about why it's not based on my expertise. And so that can actually help erase that and move it more towards a competitive category. Or in the discussion, they might say, wow, I, I didn't think of that. That's absolutely true. Wow, that that is definitely something that could be an impediment to this being successful not competitive, even when there's excellence. Um, so the best thing you can do to really figure that out is call the program officer. They're going to be candid with you. They'll tell you how the discussion went and sort of what was waiting on the decision to help you understand a little bit more. I don't know. Does that answer it more? What, have you all had experience with this or? Well, I've had, I've had experience with, uh, pretty wide variance in reviews. Um, <laughs> uh, I the a, a grant that I submitted recently was described by the the PI that I wrote it with as having the best and the worst reviews that he's ever gotten on a, oh no <laughs> uh, on a on a proposal um, and yeah I I I guess you know one one of the one of the things that I that I think was frustrating about that situation is that the negative reviews were more, I guess, sort of skeptical of our general approach and didn't and and didn't um, really identify concretely um, a you know, what they, what they felt a flaw was or justify why they, uh, why they felt that way. They just weren't very positive about it. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so that was, that was frustrating about that, that particular experience. 
Um, but yeah, no kidding. And that probably also brings up the broader point of like review unto others as you would have them review unto you. Be kind, but specific, right? Like no one likes hearing like this paper was written poorly. Well, thanks jerk. How would you make it better? (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah. That's never helpful. I, 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 I've read a bunch of the reviews of like the grants that I've been funded on, but not ones that I've actually like written. And you know, like people offer, I think generally really thoughtful, um, you know, feedback, which granted like these two have been funded. Right. Um, it is interesting. Like the one that I'm on now, like this project was submitted. This was the fifth time it was submitted and it was funded on the fifth time. It was recommended for funding like every other time, but just unfunded. So it was always like the last one out, right? And so I think that's why... Always the bridesmaid. Yeah, Chris and Ben kept submitting it because it was like, well, maybe one day it'll get funded. It kept like being pushed back. And so I think this is like the... um, You know, it always had good reviews, but it was kind of interesting to see the progression over the times of how the grant changed after like reviewer feedback. Because you could kind of see like early uh, iterations of this that there was kind of a coalescence around... Like various aspects of the project like if you know everyone's identifying one individual part of it clearly that's the weakest part that needs to be addressed so i think in general um most people i think operate from a space of wanting to help i mean we're a community but there's always a few just real assholes out there (laughs) oh hell yes Although, you know, that iterative process, though, while extremely frustrating, is good in the sense that we want to have money go to the best projects possible when there's limited resources, right? Yeah. So, like, the best, the project with the most chance of being transformative and succeeding. So, okay, I have a question. Maybe this is more of, like, a theoretical or or a value question. What if you have, like, a couple of really high-priority people identify really good projects but they're really really expensive and then you have like a handful of low or medium priority projects but they're really affordable like how do you does this get into the idea of like a balanced portfolio if you're a program officer i mean i know none of you guys are are program officers per se but like how do you weigh that you know maybe you have like eight or nine projects that you can fund and they're all like um i don't want to use incremental as a bad word but, you know, they're they're not, like, bold, giant leaps forward, but they're really good, really solid, really good stuff that you know is going to get delivered on versus, like, one or two that maybe are, like, really potentially transformational but really high risk and really expensive. Like, what do you guys think on that and, I mean, your experience or any thoughts you have? Yeah, I think... I think that's one dimension, even, of that balanced portfolio. And I, I definitely think that... It, from what I understand, the the price or whatnot can, can play a role. But I think there's also other dimensions to balancing that portfolio, like making sure it's spread across states, institution types, um, kind of making sure everybody has a seat at the table as much as possible, right? So there's lots of different axes to that that can also maybe make that medium recommendation project or grant look a little bit more attractive. Um, you know, cause say it's from a plain state, uh, at a small institution, but it was seen as pretty competitive. Does that make sense? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah totally. 
Um, and so, yeah, you, that's like the alchemy, I think, of the program officer. Yeah. Do, do you feel like at the at the panel level, you know, um, that, that panelists kind of take that into account? Or are, are they, is the panel to some degree kind of like uh, just ranking the, the merits and then the program officer kind of, is the, is the one who really thinks about the, um, you know, things like institution type and, you know, balancing, uh, you know, sort of those expensive high risk versus more, um, you know, kind of like high, high likelihood of success projects and geography yeah. and, and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess from what I've always heard, and again, I, I would always caveat this with this is one experience and go out and find some experiences or serve on a panel uh, if you can, but like talk to other people about it, but um, is that the, the panel is there to advise the program officers about the science and they're going to worry about the balance. Cool. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, but that doesn't mean that panelists can't bring up valid points. Okay. But I mean ultimately you're there to advise on the science. Um which is good cuz the program officers have received a lot of training in how to do that balance. So That's that's probably good to kind of divorce the two ideas yeah. and have it separate. Um Do you do you guys have any other thoughts on the dimensions of what program officers fund or the idea of balance that portfolio other than just quality of science versus institution, et cetera. And Grace, you already gave a pretty in-depth on that, but any more thoughts on that? I think other dimensions of diversity in who we are as a scientific community can also potentially play a role, but I don't know what to what degree, so I can't speak to that fully. That'd be interesting to know more. I hope that's considered a little bit more fully. Mm-hmm. So... Assuming you pass panel review, then you got money. What happens? How do you how do you win an award? Like, what happens? Do you get? I hope. Okay. Do they show up at the door and they're like, and you open, and it's like big giant paper check, and they're like, guess what? And it's like totally publishers clearinghouse. Like, is that how it works? Right. And the ghost of Ed McMahon. Um, yeah. Is he dead? I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> R.I.P. Right. <laughs> is he dead? <laughs> I guess he is. I don't. Right? I don't know. I haven't seen him on TV. Okay. Anyway, so all right, so you so, win the big paper check. What happens? Yeah, unfortunately, they don't show up that way, but they do call you, and it's one of the more fun phone calls you'll probably ever get. Um, and you have to keep your shit together the whole time. So this summer, when I got the call about our grant. Um, I was doing a lot of uh-huh, uh-huh, while I was doing a very crazy dance on the street as I was walking into work. Uh, <laughs> and then I got on the phone and immediately called John. And I think kind of screamed into the phone that we got it. <laughs> yes, this did happen. It was a great phone call, though. Okay. Um, right, well, and hey. I'm not going to lie, the emotional space was in, I cried a little. But... <laughs> I'm just great. saying, NSF, NSF, get back at me on that paper check thing. Right. <laughs> we need to make we need to make this happy or happen, happy Gilmore style. Hey, if you think the political parties are 
bad shit over wasteful science just wait until we get paper <laughs> checks and program officers flying all over the country to deliver them oh man that'd be great and it's like then during like the super bowl or whatever right like you have to wait outside the door and you don't know if you're getting funded until like they show up sounds great sound uh it sounds like a way to do it i love it <laughs> okay so conversely you didn't make it through panel review. First, I can refer yep. you to episode 12, where we talk about rejection and how to deal with rejection. But specifically regarding panel rejections, John, what do you do when you get the email? Uh, don't read the reviews right away. Like, d- divorce your disappointment of the overall decision from actually like dealing with the criticism of your work um i guess for me like it it was a lot to deal with all at once um and so (laughs) at at later times uh what because i've gotten a lot of grants rejected um yeah i just like you know let them sit for you know, a day, at least overnight, um, and just, like, I I think that that, I think it makes it a lot easier to deal with, personally. Grace, what do you do? Um, I guess it depends on the mood I'm in. I, I tend to be an extrovert, so I try to just go, like, similar to John, I do not read the reviews right away, because there is a thing of salt in the wounds. And if I'm an extrovert, I go be around people, right? So I'm, if I'm feeling that and just do something else. Um, a few times I've just gone to the lab to just hang around people and do stuff, busy work, wash dishes. Um, and if I'm feeling introverted for the day, I just go for a walk or get it done myself, but I don't read the reviews for sure. That is good advice, John. How about you, Jeff? How do you deal with rejection? Um, yeah, I think the last, uh, grant that I had that did not get funded, I don't think I read the reviews for, like, about six weeks, honestly. I just kind of sat there, because it was, like, not something I could resubmit anyway, so. Mm. Um, but honestly, like, it pissed me off more when I finally read them, because I was like, I don't understand, like, it's, like, five out of five across the board, and it's like, well, what do you do? You know? <laughs> yeah. So, it's an, I think it's, like, um thinking about like how faculty job searches work like you get to a point where everybody's at a high level it just everything kind of seems random so i have adopted kind of like this this is my general view in life anyway is this idea of like benevolent nihilism to where i just don't really care but then i just don't like try to actively hurt anyone then it's fine <laughs> so it's just i don't know it's uh it's like, yeah, what are you going to do, man? Like, just fuck it. Show up to work the next day. Keep going. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. Talk to me in, in the spring when my first NSF thing gets kicked back, and I'll tell you how I feel then. <laughs> but everything else, it seems small potatoes comparatively. So you. if you do get rejected, you can resubmit for future calls, right? So Absolutely. So I've talked about this one a little bit and, and seeing like progressions of like the current grant that I'm funded on. Like I said, it went through like four previous times before it was funded. And so each time it was kind of look at those reviews, figure out where the weakness was, try to bone that up in the next one and then kind of submit it. 
but um and, you know kind of reading through that panel summary but somebody has a comment here in the show doc about reading the panel summary as voodoo what do you mean there and who is that We just lost your audio. No! <laughs> She's frozen in the really funny face, though, so it makes it worthwhile. Maybe I should turn well, This is the first like episode we've recorded with video on in probably two years, <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> it's probably the problem. Um, but I'll... I don't know. I'll just jump in for the sake of continuity. Um, so... Yeah, so a lot of times you do have kind of disparate reviews. Uh, sometimes they're, you know, really widely varying and, and sometimes less so. Um, but I think an important part of reading the panel summary is, you know, figuring out what are the criticisms that really mattered. Um, and that and that reflects, and, and, what, and what are the strengths of your proposal that, you know, also came up um, in in the full group discussion because uh, those are the things that really, um, you know, kind of, you know, caused it to, you know, to sink um, below other uh, other proposals that, you know, that maybe were ranked as, as competitive and funded. Um, and like Grace was talking about, that can kind of reflects the conversations that were had in the room. Maybe, you know, some criticisms were refuted by someone else on the panel. Um, And, you know, or or maybe, you know, they, the panel just decided that like, you know, hey, you know, that's a thing, but it doesn't really, really matter. Um, Or maybe they, although this hasn't been my experience, but I, I presume it's possible that the, the panel would um, would raise things and begin discussing things that um, aren't really you know that um, that apparent from the ad hoc reviews, but someone on the panel thought it was important to to bring up. Um, I think that I think the panel summary is also a good gauge of how far away you are. Um, like when when you get classified just into um, you know competitive or not competitive, uh, I think there are a lot of good proposals that end up in the not competitive category because there's a lot of fighting for um, a small amount of money. Uh, and a lot of good science that gets proposed. Um, and, you know, if your panel summary has a lot more positives than negatives, then you should probably feel encouraged about resubmitting. Um, you know, it, if your panel summary is pretty concise and not very positive, for better or for worse, you know, your proposal was probably pretty easy to kick to the curb and, you know, you might need to really rethink, um, 
the approach that you're taking and um maybe that's not a knock on your science per se maybe that's you know you should think about what program you're submitting to um you know maybe maybe your proposal really wasn't what that uh that call was looking for and that's why it was easy to um you know to 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 give a low grade to so can you follow up with a program officer to kind of clarify panel summaries and do you like call them or is it just kind of like when you see them kind of at meetings or whatever afterwards how does that work so uh i think i think we mentioned this in the in the nsf part one episode um a great way to talk to your program officer is to you know shoot them an email and ask to schedule a phone call um you know it's you you want to be respectful of their time um but it's hard to go back and forth and and have a really um you know critical and but also efficient discussion uh just over email um and so getting that getting that call um getting a chance to really have a conversation um where you know in a half hour or so you can you can really um you can really get a lot done. Um, that's important. Uh, I think it's also important to, you know, to have, you know, to have questions, you know, have a, have an aim, you know, uh, that's more specific than, Hey, tell me about, <laughs> tell me about the panel discussion. Um, cause that, you know, you, you, you want to, you want to make, you want to give it the best odds that you are going to, um, have a productive conversation and get the things that you need to, you know, to learn um, from your program officer in order to have the best uh, submission the next time around. And this has been really good. I've learned a lot from talking to you guys about this. Um, we lost Grace, though. Grace isn't back. Yeah. We were gonna... So, but I don't, yeah, you have any closing thoughts on the NSF thing that we haven't talked about yet? Um. Well, so let's. We have a we have a, another mailbag question um, from Luke Brown uh, about strategies for submitting as an early career researcher. Um, I mean, I I know that we've all submitted grants. Uh, what what's it? You know what's your experience been like um and and how has submitting grants kind of influenced your your career development jeff well so for me like nsf grants are kind of discouraged at where i am right now just because of like being listed there as like a postdoc like the postdoc status is inherently transitory and so their concern is like well who actually keeps the money I mean, obviously, like, institutions are awarded the money, so, like, it would not be transferable, and typically the grant um, terms are usually longer than the contract terms that I have, right? So it's kind of been, like, a frustration. So there has been talk, like, well, you know, within the department, like, no one's actually really kind of pushed this issue and actually applied for anything. So I think, like, the next one we're going to submit, like, I'm just going to just be listed on, like, as an actual co-PI instead of just a senior personnel just to kind of push that issue and see what the institution will do. Because I don't think, and you can probably speak to this better than I can, there's no rule against it, you know, from an NSF standpoint, 
per se. But um, it's more of like an inst- how the institution kind of wants to handle it, or maybe there. I mean, what do you? What are your thoughts on that? Um, so, the NSF um, has really pretty few rules about who can be a PI. Um, they basically leave it up to uh, the institutions who are submitting the grants who has PI status, um, and a lot of a lot of institutions, postdocs, do not. Um, there are, in a lot of institutions, also pathways to uh, allow a, um, a postdoc to be a PI on a grant. Um, but oftentimes, a contingency, in, in most cases, in all cases that I'm aware of, uh, a contingency is that there is a, a um, you know, a, a faculty member who is uh the lead pi for that institution um so it's it's kind of a way that um you know postdocs can signal their um their leadership of a of a proposal and their ownership over a set of ideas um but also you know it's in the institution's interest to make sure that there's likely to be someone uh, at the institution to manage the grant, to keep the money in place, um, and so on and so forth. Awesome. Well, uh, uh, I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But, uh, um, you know, bigger picture than that, uh, I would say that, you know, writing NSF grants uh, with, you know, with, with PI collaborators and, and colleagues has been something that I've found to be really helpful and valuable for, uh, for my career. And so I would definitely, you know, definitely encourage folks to, um, you know, to, to do that, uh, even if it's not, you know, NSF, um, just other other major grants, um, I think there are a lot of there's a lot of good that comes out of learning about the system and um, how to write these, you know, big and um, you know large scope proposals. And uh, of course, if you if you do hit on one, the the career benefits are are pretty big. So so it's um, definitely definitely worth the effort. So Luke also mentions about the changes in submission times and deadlines. The the limits though, the submission limits and deadlines. The submission limits though has changed though recently since we recorded episode one part of this, right? Like that's been lifted. Or am I wrong? No, you you are right. the The limits on the number of proposals a PI can submit have been lifted, and I think that that's great news um, for the community. I think it's great news, especially for early career people, um, for whom collaborations are really important and you know if you are a postdoc you know you you very likely need a um a collaborator who's a pi at your institution um in order to to submit the grant so lifting those limits means that there are going to be more uh or i guess not more but a but a, a lack of restriction uh, relative to the, the previously announced policy uh, 
on how on whether that can occur. Excellent. Well, I, if Grace is not going to come back, I guess we can't do the closing segment that we were going to do where you guys were going to challenge me to the things that I had to do to earn my Iowa State Limnology Lab sticker, <laughs> um, which I'm really sad about. So like, the only one that was officially on the table, because the, the idea was that we were going to put this as a poll on Twitter, and whatever people picked, that was the thing that I had to do to earn my badge as a limnologist. And so the background story is this is Grace's lab has made pretty awesome lab stickers, and I totally want one. John, of course, has already published a limnologist paper, so he's already officially a limnologist. And, um, but I am not. Um, I am a lake enthusiast. Uh, I, I enjoy <laughs> I enjoy the lacustrine environments. Um, but I do want one of these dope ass stickers. So the thing was that I have to do some type of hazing ritual in order to acquire a sticker. So I know that one of the choices was that I had to acquire water from the is that the hypolimnion? Is that the one without light? That's right, right? Or hyperlimnion? It's uh, great <laughs> hyperlimnion. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's the one that's real deep. That I have not, I have not earned my limnologist stripes, or so, I did so by uh, being a data analyst on a paper about lakes. But I'm gonna Google real quick layers of the lake, layers of a lake. <laughs> Hold on. And it takes you to Grace's. It, is, it appears webpage. to be. It is. It is hypolimnion. So what I would have to do is go down and sample water from the hypolimnion during winter. So this would ideally be. I think it's actually not the coldest part of the lake in the winter, though, is it? Obviously, not. None of us have taken limnology, but I think it's not. So anyway, it's going to be cold ass water, and I have to take the ice bucket challenge, where basically someone will pour the water over my head. And I'm not doing this for charity. It's literally just to get a sticker. So this is not noble in any way. Um, but then I think there's going to be two other options and then people get to vote on it. I think the ice bucket thing is probably going to be the one that wins. Um, but uh, look for that. We'll post that soon. Maybe we'll do a follow-up with Grace. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious to know what the other two options are. As long as one is not published a limnology paper because that takes too long. And obviously what about, I am what about? not remotely qualified. What about eating a salad of submerged aquatic vegetation? Yeah, I'd do that anyway. <laughs> I'll do that right now. I'm gonna go do that tomorrow. Wait, what? What's okay? So, like, what? What? Maybe I should clarify. Like, what are? What would I be eating then? I don't like know. Kelp? It's like kelp. I mean, aren't. I, I guess it's ocean. All the kelps that I know of are marine, so we don't want that. Um, no, I'm not a marine analogist. No, no, you are not. <laughs> um, no, just you know the reeds, grasses, and you know all that macro algae stuff that's like growing up out of the water. Yeah, man. All right, I'll, I'll add that. That's a good one too. Um, we need to come up with another one. I don't know what another one would be, but yeah, I would probably eat the thing. I, I'm one of those people who will eat anything though, like once. So, my new my new jam lately was um, when we were in Michigan. Somebody like pulled out the jar of olives and like started drinking the olive juice out of it, and I was like, whoa, whoa, that's a thing. 
and so started pouring like olive juice on like some of like the crackers and whatnot that we had because basically the last day we had run out of food and we were just like pulling all the shit that we had out of the refrigerator to make something to eat before we went to a restaurant because you know when you spend like 16 hours in the woods and it's cold like you're hungry and so we're just pouring olive juice on bread and stuff dude so good so good (laughs) go go find you something and pour some olive juice on it right now preferably like kalamata like the like the greek olives that's that's the jam Uh, it's like these are like pickleback shots you know i've never done that totally would though you should you'd like it all right cool so we'll figure it out we'll put it up on the the social media the social mead as the kids call it um you don't <laughs> john do you have any thoughts before we close nope i'm thoughtless do you think it's about 10 percent of the episodes that we lose someone thanks to shitty internet is it maybe it's less uh, than that it's probably less than that we've only done that a couple times at least cool. permanently i've definitely um, like cut in and out a few times <laughs> Uh, so, uh, heads up, I will be for sure at the American Geophysical Union Conference uh, the second week of December in Washington, D.C. So if you're one of the 26,000 other Earth and ecosystem scientists who will be there, feel free to say hello. Um, I'll have stickers, too. Um, I guess with that, you can uh, check us out on the web at MajorRevisionsShow.com or MajorRevisionsPodcast.com. I think we own both now, which is pretty dope. And we are on Twitter and Instagram at major underscore revisions. And you can download this show um, via iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and the new Google Podcast app, which is actually pretty useful. I like it a lot. You should check it out. Um, With that, have a great night. I'm all right, yeah, I think I'm fine. My savior lives in telephones. And I just dream of you and step outside, dial up and hope that you're